1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast, production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: All right, everybody. Today, we have Mr. Bob Klinger from Maryland. He is a veteran who has built himself quite a, an operation up there. I had the pleasure of hearing him present about his niche markets at Innovation 2020 in San Diego. And I knew I needed to talk to this guy. I mean, number one, when he got on the stage, his suit game was off the charts. And I could tell that based on how he was dressed alone, he and I would get along because the man was wearing a tailored suit. And everybody who knows me knows how much I value Mr. Daryl Polito, my tailor that I've had (laughs) for 15 years. And all of my producers know that if they bring in an account that's $10,000 or more in revenue, as Mr. Kyle Howe gets a uh, custom suit and some shirts and some ties, and and for the ladies, we would hook them up with whatever professional apparel they would like as well. I know that um, some people have questioned me in the past about that right now we don't have any female producers that's not by design by any stretch so bob welcome on to power producers why don't you take a couple of seconds and, and tell everybody sort of a little bit about how you went from wherever you were to, to where you are now and just before you do that thank you so much for your service man we appreciate yep. uh, our veterans more than more than
2: uh, we could ever express why I appreciate it, David. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Bob Klinger, President and CEO of Klinger Insurance Group, located in Germantown, Maryland. Uh, started in 1993. Prior to that, I was coming off of active duty, and uh, I was going to go back into school to finish a law degree. And I took some time off, went to the beach, met a young lady, and uh, fell in love. And her dad was in the insurance business, and he said, uh, "Have you ever thought about insurance?" I said, "Ah, oh, there's no money in insurance." Uh, I don't think I'd be good at that. And he said, I really need, you should take a look at it. And then um, at that point in time, I was just going through th- things, with coming back out of the military and um, I needed some time off. And I told my mom, I want to take some time off before going back to school. And I said, uh, I think I'm going to take a part-time job working for a company called Mass Mutual doing life insurance. And I, I did that because uh, when my dad was little, when I was little, my dad passed away and he wasn't a big believer in life insurance. So I got in a life insurance business and sure as heck, uh, within 90 days, I paid up my first death claim. And uh, that kind of brought home to me what we do. We bring promises. And then about a year later, I had a big deal um, where a client of mine was having a valve replacement, a seven-year valve replacement. And everybody declined it, but I got Chubb to write it. And this was about, about 150000 in premium. And the game was that if he lived for four years, he would, he would he'd make more the estate plan than if he died and so we did it and he ended up dying within two years of it and his family had delivered a 1.9 million dollar check to his family and it was kind of geared it was kind of weird because we were talking about his death the whole time and he knew he had a certain time that he was going to pass away and it was just a no matter how long this valve was going to go and um he passed away and we delivered a check and his family uh received 1.9 million that cleared the estate so those two things uh, kind of brought me into the life insurance business. And it so happened I was the number one agent in the year for Mass Mutual in the country for new business sales. And so uh, a company called Erie Insurance said, approached me and said, hey, have you ever thought about um, selling property and casualty? And they said, well, I haven't really thought about that. And so they wanted me to move down to Maryland to meet one of their big agencies. They were top in p and and I was going to handle the life part of it. And so I thought about it. I came out of Erie, Pennsylvania. It was a small blue-collar community. I needed a change of pace. So I moved to Maryland and worked for this agency for about a year. And I started looking at the residual income of what the PNC has to offer versus the, the you know, first-year kill on the life insurance side. And I said, hey, I kind of like this annuity, too, you know. And so I, start, um, I went to school for dry cleaning because I started looking at different businesses in the community. And I happened to see a thing. I think it was Forbes that year it had like the uh, the industries that are producing the most millionaires have to be dry cleaning. Hmm. I said, oh, I think I going to start marketing and dry cleaning. And so I went up to school in New York, uh, a company called uh, IFI and NCA, and I learned dry cleaning. And so I learned how they they process the, the valuation of the clothes, the equipment and everything it took to run a dry cleaning plant. And so that I started going door to door marketing to dry cleaners. And then I went to the National Association by NCA, and they got endorsed to be their preferred uh, vendor for insurance. And then I started going to all the national trade shows. And then I started realizing that you know, out of the dry cleaning business, 80 percent of them were Korean owned. And so I started hiring staff that spoke the language, because what I realized was a lot of them like doing business with people that spoke their language because it was a language barrier. And that's why many Koreans came into that business, because it was easy for them to do, because there wasn't much conversation. Hello, how are you? Take your garment in. And that's five bucks or six bucks, and that's the end of the conversation with them. And so we start marketing, and then um, we got hooked up with the Korean Dry Cleaners Federation, which is their national association. And then they asked me to speak in Seoul, Korea. And so I went to Seoul, Korea with two of my staff, and we spoke on a stage of about 1,100 Korean dry cleaners about dry cleaning. And it just kind of launched. And so we went from our dry cleaning niche to a restaurant niche where we started a Chinese restaurant program with Fireman's Fund in the late 90s. We took it to about $11 million of premium. And then we start going, okay, Chinese restaurants, Korean restaurants, Japanese restaurants, Hispanic restaurants. And we start building niches and all those. And then we did micro niches. And then we said, okay, let's go after who supplies the restaurants. Let's go after the wholesalers. The guys that supply the chopstick, the meat, the bags, the point of sale services, the signs, their CPAs, their attorneys, their bankers. And it just you take one niche and it went to like 25 different other many things that you can do. And before you know it, those other things became centers of influence. So when somebody was opening up a restaurant and a realtor was closing on a deal to put them in that shopping center, they're calling me to say, hey, call Bob about the insurance. Or if a lender was lending them money, they'd say, hey, call Bob. If the architect was drawing the plans, he'd say, hey, call Bob. And so that's how it got to be. And then we just started niching. We went in the same thing with liquor stores because in our community, it's either Korean or Indian liquor stores. And then we went into 7-Eleven stores like the retail stores. Again, it was an Indian population. And then we went up to the motel hotels in our areas. A lot of them were Indian by descent. And so we've kind of niched So today we speak 11 different languages within our office.
3: Wow.
1: You know, it's interesting, um, a couple of things that you said. Number one, you you read articles like that in Forbes and you find out that more millionaires come from dry cleaning than anything else. I'll never forget when I was going in, when I was in grad school, I worked, I I had to do a, a presentation in front of a panel of business leaders. In the Birmingham, Alabama business community, and I was talking to a guy that owned a large construction company that built shopping malls nationally, and and he was on the panel that evaluated my presentation, and we ended up walking out to our cars together. And he asked me, he said, "What do you, what do you want to do, you know, with yourself when you get out of here?" And I said, "I, I want to build wealth. I want to do whatever I can." He said, "Then what I'm going to tell you is go into a non sexy industry." And I said, okay, what does that mean? He said, the richest guy that I know owns a company that manufactures socks. He said, everybody and their brother thinks that you're going to make all of your money. And as I started looking at different people that I knew that had accumulated significant wealth, that held true. I mean, granted, I would consider insurance production... It's pretty sexy. I mean, there's a lot of people who look at, you know, you're going after high dollar sales or building an agency or whatever else. That's not manufacturing socks. I don't put those two on the, on the same level. And there's plenty of millionaires in the insurance industry. But I thought that was, that was interesting advice that he said that. The second thing that you said is that you went to school for dry cleaning. I think it's amazing how little people do to invest in understanding the industries that their targeted prospects and their clients are in. And all they want to do is sell a product, right? That's one of, my, one of my main things I talk about is, you know, I'm not here to sell you a product. I'm here to help you solve a problem. And we look at what the problem is. Most agents don't have that ability because they don't understand the operational aspect of the business. And early on, I realized that if I really wanted to get credibility with middle market commercial companies, one thing I would do is put on jeans, t-shirt, and some work boots, and I would go work. I've done everything from work with putting in a pool deck with a concrete company to working on the assembly line for a manufacturing facility, because I wanted to understand the pieces and parts of what made their operation tick so that I could give them the best advice and learn as much about the operational end of their business as I could. Probably a little bit of that comes from the fact I ran grocery stores for the first 10 years of my adult life. Um, it's an interesting, we talked about it on another podcast. It's an interesting dynamic because the ability to move up and excel in that industry and make good money. I mean, I was at six figures at 21 years old might as well have been a millionaire. I didn't have a wife or kids or any way to spend all the money I was making and I was working a hundred hours a week. But there's really no at that time, I can't speak for what it is now, there was no real qualifications. It's like if you were the one who could stock the fastest, you were gonna get promoted to manage the stock crew. And if your stock crew did well, then you would be an assistant manager and so on and so forth. There was no real Path to how to get there. So when they when when I went in, I started as a stalker, and two years later I was running a relatively profitable location. You know, they tried to give me a store two or three times and I turned it down because I wanted to. That's the way I'm wired. If the person who fried the donuts didn't come in, I needed to know how to go in and get the dough ready, how to turn the fryer on, how to fry the donuts, finish them off, and all of that stuff. And until I worked every single job in the location I was responsible for, I wasn't willing to be responsible for that location. So I have so much useless skill right now for food prep and everything else. But if I ever decided I was going to go in and and go after grocery stores, I would probably do really well with that. Um, So I think there's a lot to be said about just that, that general knowledge. And it's a place where if I was giving anybody advice that wanted to go into middle market production for sure. Go offer to work on site. If they have a restaurant, go work on go work in the kitchen, go work on the the prep line, whatever you can do to understand, because you learn so much. Plus people talk, right? <laughs> you know, if it's a big enough opportunity, you can learn a lot just from the people who you work side by side with given giving you their opinion on everything that's going on. And that's one of the ways when we do loss control visits, I find out the most is I just go and grade myself
2: with the frontline employees. I I relate back to the military. I started out as a PV-1. Then I was once that Corporal Clinger, but I didn't dress like Corporal Clinger on MASH. Um, And then I I went up, eventually switched to uh, OCS and became an officer. So I was that one digging that foxhole when that platoon leader said, hey, we need this foxhole 11 feet by 7 foot. And then he'd say, well, uh, not here, over there, after you've already dug it for four hours. And so I think before you can – give somebody a task and purpose, you need to understand what it takes, the time, the input, and the effort of it. And I thought, same thing with uh, the dry cleaning in the restaurant or any other any- industry. I mean, we do field trips in my office. I actually take my staff out that are specialized in certain things and I'll walk them through a restaurant from the loss control standpoint, from the front, the hallways into the kitchen and everything in between. So when they're talking to a client and they get a loss control recommendation they see a list of 10 items, They understand what they're talking about. They're just not reading something off a piece of paper. And so therefore, they can go back and say, is this really relevant? Or is it just move the tree away from the fire extinguisher pull button? You know, um, really take a look at it. And and that helps alleviate a lot of the frustration for the client because they're talking their language. They understand what they're going through. And it's funny because two of the young ladies I hired actually owned restaurants at one time. And so they come in with a whole new set of experiences because they understand how someone feels to make a payroll. What happens when your chef or cook doesn't show up that day and now you're the chef or cook and everything else in between. And so I think that that rapport that you build with a client is different than someone just coming in, just saying, let me see your policy and tell you something.
3: It gives you instant credibility. For you sure. better believe it. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Yep. Now, I, I was just curious what what your um, what the biggest challenge was for you transitioning from your military career into the insurance industry. It's it's obviously quite uh, quite a different <laughs> you know scope.
2: I think my biggest challenge was how to deal with employees. I came in with a range of mentality, <laughs> like okay, you're not here at six, you're leaving at five. Why? You know, uh, because I was all in. And I was gun ho, you know, and I expected everyone to think like me and be like me. And the fact is, you burn people out that way. And so maybe I burned out some good people over the years because of my intenseness. You know, I didn't want to know why. You know, if they just said someone canceled, I'm like, OK, I want to know. Don't tell me they canceled. I want to know why they canceled, who they went with, what care. I want the intel the whole way straight down. And, and it would just drive me crazy. And then I just had to mellow out a little bit and just realized that. Um, not everybody's going to think like you. In some cases, that's good. Maybe with your producers, you want them to think like you. But sometimes with some of your staff and things like that, you want them to have their own personality and own skill set. And so then I started hiring people that um, were smarter than me in other areas that maybe I had some shortcomings on. I'm not a big technology guy or, uh, you know, or things like that. So I hire people that are smarter than me and things that either, A, I don't have the talent to do or I don't have the time to do. And I give people some space. And so I think that was the big thing coming in is that um, toning down that military a little bit when it comes to staff, but still not taking away that attack instinct of going out and hunting for new business. How many people, so talk a little bit about
1: your production team. How's that set up? Is everything, because I mean, I know a ton of your stuff's got to be referral based just based on how you've built it out. So, do you have a, a larger inside sales team or are they hybrid where there's some inside, some outside, or do you have full out time outside producers? I'm
2: 80 20, 80 in, 20 out. Everybody in my office is required to sell. If you hold a desk here, you need to, you need to hit numbers. Um, we, they have daily goals, weekly goals, quarterly goals, and they're highly incentivized to meet those goals. But mediocrity is, is not an option. It's not an option. And and we make it known and we post the numbers in front of everybody every week so they can see why are these people up there knocking it out and why aren't you doing that? And then I can go back and measure it. I can look at the number of phone calls you've made. I can listen on your calls. I can look at the duration of the calls. I can look at the activity of what you're doing to see, are you really giving it your all? And maybe you just don't have the skill set. And honestly, I've had to let some people go because, Maybe they were good with a State Farm or an Allstate or or wherever they came from, but that's not what I'm looking for. And so I take more time to really hire someone, but I'm very quick to let somebody go.
1: Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people make mistakes. I mean, it was that way even in retail. If you – number one – You most of your mistakes are made in the hiring process, but if you don't get rid of them in that well within that ninety day window, and they manage to become a problem child that's always a thorn in your side, you really don't have anybody to blame but yourself. And I mean, for me, I'm a softy to a certain degree. I put up with more than what I should from some people, and it's it's kind of interesting because one of my best friends was my was my co manager back when I ran stores. And he, he came down a couple of years he's like, what in the world has happened to you, man? He said, you would have never, you would have never put up with this when you were 22, 23 years old. You'd have chewed them up and spit them out. And I, I told him, I said, you know what, man? I said, it, it's different. It's 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 my money. I feel like it's when, when you're in a small business and you see people coming in and you know the names of their kids, you know their families and all of that stuff, I carry around more weight for other people's success than what I probably should. Sure. And, you know, I think that, that sometimes if I were to tell you what one of my biggest faults is, you know, in leading an organization, it's that I'm, I'm too patient. I, I need to dial it. I need to dial it back in a little bit and, you know, make sure that I'm not because I put up with things that quite frankly could lead to much bigger issues down the road. And I mean, I know that's, I, I know that's something that I need to work on. I, you know, I'm, I'm relatively slow to hire, but, and so I think to a certain degree, that makes me feel like that the hiring choices I'm making are always a hundred percent the best and they're not, you know, sometimes I make mistakes. It's not always rainbows and unicorns on my side of the fence. And I just, I, I put up with more than I should. And Kyle would probably validate that because I know just in conversations, you know, with people on my team, they've, they've told me, wow, I can't believe you finally pulled the trigger.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Well, hey, speak up, you know, not that Kyle has a problem speaking up, but, you know, speak up <laughs> sooner if, if yeah. that's the case. You know, if you guys see something that I don't or you think that I'm not acting appropriately, that's the one thing I can tell you that I've learned over the years. Because as crusty as I used to be, I do take feedback. If I am if I jack something up or if if I don't do right by somebody, anybody on my team should have the ability to come and tell me that and know that I'll accept it and, and, and we, not just brush it off. Um, so I think you know it's interesting because this is a whole different kind of leadership than playing sports or being in the military or even playing with somebody else's money running a, a large you know a large team I tell people all the time my last job in retail was 150 million dollar a year location with 250 employees that's a that's a good sized company by all stretch you know all, you know all accounts so it's it's just it's interesting it's interesting I mean, to how we hard- adapt
2: over time Two of the hardest things I had to make decisions on. One time I had an Asian district for mass mutual agents and I recruited the they recruited and we had 15 producers and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to light it up here. I'm top of the table and I got 15 more. We're really going to crush, you know, and three months, six months, about seven months into it. I went to the general manager. I said, look, I said, I've had it. I said, I am not in the business to be a babysitter. You know, I can teach people. I can help them go out and close sales and things like that. But if they don't have the fundamental skills to do the things that need to be done, that's it. I said, I want to fire all of them. He looked at me, what? I said, look, if you take 15 of these guys, I've produced more than 15, and I spent 60% of my business helping them. I said, there's a problem with this. And I just let them all go. I let them all go. You know, and then I'd go to these events, and you hear you talk and say, "Oh, how many employees do you have?" And you hear someone say, "Oh, I got 30, I got 40, I got 50." And I, when I was first young, I was like, "Wow, they got a big shop." And then I'd ask the next question about, um, you know, what is your total premium? What is your total revenue? And then we'd ask another question: Is what is your total revenue per employee? And then you start realizing, <laughs> big is not always better. And then, I, and I think back mm-hmm. of when I was in Ranger School, I'd operate nine guys we come in and take out a whole village of nine because we all were the very best at what we did. And so I took that military and said, look, I'd rather have a smaller shop that's very, very good than having somebody that's 20, 25 people and you're carrying a bunch of dead weight in between. And so that's Mm -hmm. why um, my staff are very competitive. It's funny because I employ all ladies, all ladies. I'm the only man. And my ladies are... I often say they will kick you and kick you twice. They will double kick you. <laughs> I mean, they're bright, they're beautiful. Double
3: kick is the worst.
2: Yeah, it's like a military. We double tap you. We just don't shoot you once, <laughs> we shoot you twice, you know? And it's just the way it is with the way they are. I mean, they their skills of picking up on things from a client, you know, that extra sense that they have is is amazing. And I tell you, they are very aggressive, but they're polite, regressive, and they're able to open up doors. Uh, to get a lot of things done. And so this past year we went through the uh, the best study, the AM Best study for best review. And they did a whole thing over like a three month looking at my financials, looking at the number of carriers, looking at how much business each CSR, each producer does. And they look at our EBITDA. And it was funny because we came number one in the country for our, our bracket of revenue among all agents in the United States. Because our profitability is through the roof. You know, we look at everything we do. I mean, and that's very, very important. I mean, I challenged my insurance companies. When I first used to come in, you'd beg for an appointment to get in. Now, you know, I'm saying to them, what are you going to do for us? When they come in, I give them a report card. And I say, okay, I want you to do these 10 things and then come see me. Don't come in not prepared and just want to waste time because you got to see three agents every day. No, no. And then I want to say, okay, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do to help support my nonprofit, Clinger Cares, for my community? And so I give them to donate a thousand, five thousand for backpacks or whatever we're doing. I have them do manicure, pedicure, spa treatments for my staff on different goals. You know, little weekend getaways, dinner, bowling nights. So I make them buck up because they have a lot of money, and I think a lot of agencies are afraid to ask them. Now look, you have to produce for them. If you're making them money, as I said to Hartford. If you're telling me I'm making you $0.93 on a dollar because my loss ratio is 7%, we need to talk. You know, we need to talk. And so that's what we do. I mean, we have enhanced compensation with all our carriers, and that's what we do. I mean, I had one carrier many years ago say to me, Bob, you know, you lose a lot of people. This is like 10 years ago. I said, well, you're telling me here that I'm your number one producer in your region. So that means I'm generating my loss ratio is great. My profitability is great, but you're complaining about me losing people. I said, do you ever think of why I'm losing people? Because I'm not going to settle for substandard stuff. They're going to document the way I want them to document in our management system. They're going to market and they're going to cross out and they're going to do the things that we need to do. If not, they can go to my competitors. I really don't care, but I'm not going to change the way we are because we're, we, have, we have the right sauce for what we're trying to do. And I'm not going to deviate. I'll modify it a little bit here or there but if it's working, why change it?
3: Right. Both you guys talked about mistakes from a hiring and managing perspective. Um, and, and Bob, you kind of alluded to some things that you feel like have made your agency and your producers successful. On the flip side of that, wh- what have you seen over your years in the industry that have been the biggest mistakes that producers have made?
2: Yeah, um, I think, you know, a lot of times is Getting into a routine and staying in that routine. I call it a battle rhythm. You know, what do you do from this first time when you wake up to the end of the day and knowing your ABCs? What is your A time, B time and C time? And knowing when you should be prospecting and when you should be doing the non-important items. Okay? there's a lot of things that can fill up your day. But do they all make you money? At the end of the day, the two important things are you're calling and seeing. You have to get in front of people. If you don't get up to bat, nothing else happens. doesn't matter whether you got a CPCU, CIC, CLU. I've had people that had the whole ABC after the name, but they couldn't sell with a shit. <laughs> I'm just being honest. You have to be able to get in front of people. Okay. And so that's very, very important. Making the phone calls, building those centers and influence. You know, um, we break everything down by a prospecting will. And I require them. We take like a bicycle wheel and they say, how are you generating your business? Okay. Maybe I'm getting business from CPAs or attorneys. Maybe it's cold calls. Maybe it's walk-ins. Initially, when you first start out and you're young, you don't know a lot of people. It's going to be more cold calls. Okay. Of course. But, then I, but then I get them into like a rotary club or a, or a BI and i group, or I have them establish their own business networking group, you know? And then what happens is that pie goes from more cold calls to start – individual niches and then every year you can evaluate okay is it really worth me being in a local chamber did i get a lot of business how many how much business did i get what percentage of my pie did i get yes or no and then that lets them know do i want to spend more of my time doing this or would i rather be at my bni group where they gave me 35% of my revenue and so you have got to put systems in place but then they got to be willing to follow those systems and you got to hold them accountable
1: so how do you measure that? Do you guys use the CRM? Do you have like- We a do.
2: Dedicated? I well, mean, what do you use? Um, use? We use HubSpot. Oh, nice. So do we. Yeah. But the big thing is also what we do is this. If we have call nights or different call times, I can see the number of calls they make. And so it's funny when they tell me they made 300 calls or whatever, I can look and say, okay, you made 75. And then I could drill down on that. There. <laughs> so I know you're not, you know, it's it's it's- It's real obvious. So we can see that there and we can measure their activity because we have programs on the computers to measure how much of it is doing essential things versus non-essential things. And then I expect them, I don't want to see you in the office. So everybody in my office has three monitors, but my producers only have one. And the reason being is I don't want you to be comfortable. I don't want you here. I want you out in front of clients. Okay. And so that's a very big. Sounds familiar. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, other than company meetings or things like that, you need to be out. And so you need to have 15 to 25 scene appointments every week, every week. And then, you know, it's that then we put it in the CRM, then we help you with your marketing plan. And so you've got to be willing to invest in your own business because this is the greatest industry in the world where you can come in, put a sign on the window and open and virtually paid nothing. Versus, if you own a restaurant, a dry cleaner, or a hotel, you're, you're taking out loans. You're putting a half million, million, two million, and you got all that there. And I tell them, look, I'm giving you everything I didn't have when I first started out. When I first started out, I was a CSR, I was a receptionist, I was the guy cleaning up the trash. I did everything because I I, didn't, I couldn't afford to hire anybody. But as I look back, it was great because I understood all those different duties, and how long it took to do it, and what did it take to get it done and done right. So I'm asking you to do two things. Call people, see people. I want you to get out in front of people. I want you to build relationships with attorneys, CPAs, bankers, lenders, mortgage brokers, you know, and give, 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 and you will get. But you need to be in front of people. And you have to bring value.
1: Yeah, you know, HubSpot makes it really hard for them to cheat. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a guy that was telling me, so my, I, one of my top five things that I always talk about is it's never the process, it's always the person. The process works no matter who you are. You have to execute the process that has been defined, that has been proven to be successful to perfection. If you come to me and you're not making your numbers, or if I come to you and you're not making your numbers, and you say, well, you know, uh, it's just, you know, my emails aren't getting opened." you know, which is, this is, this is a real example from the recent past for us. My email templates and HubSpot are just aren't working. They're not getting open. They're not getting clicked through. Okay. So what do I do? I immediately pick up the phone, call my IT guy and say, please run me the email template reports for the last 30, 60, and 90 days for all producers, because I'd like to compare the numbers. Well, so they do an email template as a follow. And they're pretty well written. It's not something that looks like it's automated. But it's to follow up on a cold call marketing drop. And then there's templates for following up on actual meetings and everything. So I ask my guys from a cold call marketing drop standpoint, I need you to get 25 to 30 a week with the expectation if we can get 15 to 20 that are reasonable, I'm happy with that. And so (laughs) this guy's telling me how bad the system is and that cold calling might have worked for me 15 years ago, but it doesn't work on the streets anymore. And when the HubSpot report comes out in the last 30 days, nine, nine emails went out. And I'm like, you don't have a process problem. You have a volume problem. You yeah. know, if, you, if, if you're not, if you're only sending out nine, and I mean, what's crazy is the next closest person was 67. So I know, th- and, and that person's getting in front of people, they're getting the opportunities, they have good business in the pipeline. So, I mean, when you have a CRM, you know, again, one of the things I tell people all the time, you're not an agency until you physically sell a policy that requires you to administer an insurance product, right? Until then, you're a sales organization, period. You have to run your agency like you're a sales organization because you're trying to build that top line. Everything else is is going to fall into place after that. And I think that's where a lot of agencies screw up is, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that you have HubSpot. I knew you had to have a CRM, but definitely not surprised HubSpot's the one that you picked because frankly, it's probably the best bang for your buck. So that knowing your personality and how you do things, that makes a lot of sense. But there's so many agencies out there that don't do it, right? So when people ask about HubSpot, I'll take calls with them. I'll, I'll I'll tell them how we're using it because we use the sales, the service and the marketing modules in our firm mm-hmm. so that we're generating tickets and tasks and I for me I have to be able to log into a dashboard in table format and see how many tasks and tickets and things are stacked up because visually I know immediately where to go and solve the problem. Sure. If I've got somebody who's got tickets stacked up and it's a single employee that's not that's missing a part of a process or whatever I know right where to fix the problem. So many agencies look at the price tag and they say, no, that's too expensive. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to use it. They do the same thing with Zywave. We're big fans of Zywave. We, I mean, I tell, I joke about it all the time. I tell people, my first two employees were ModMaster and Broker Briefcase. <laughs> my whole business is built off of us doing, or me personally doing, experience modification factor audits, and then, which is the diagnosis, and then using Broker Briefcase is the treatment plan to fix all of the issues that are in there. I've been able to generate a lot of revenue using that approach. And I hear people all the time say, oh, their products are worthless. You know, It's not what they represent, whatever else. It goes back to what I said before. It's always the person, never the process. Either they shouldn't have bought that product to begin with because it just didn't fit their agency, or they bought it and they let it collect dust on a shelf somewhere and they didn't use it right. If you use it right, just like HubSpot, It's going to do everything you want it to do. The other thing for people listening that I would advise you on, when you buy HubSpot, it's not a magic wand. You are buying a skeleton. You're buying a a chassis, and you have to customize it and build build the processes and the procedures around it. And that's not something that happens overnight. I don't care how much money you have. You don't have enough time. Unless you hire fifteen developers to go in and all just build instant HubSpot, and even then you're going to have your own set of issues because who knows if they're communicating with each other the right way and that everything talks to each other the way that it's supposed to, you know. So for me, if I give anybody any advice at all, if you if you spend the money to put a CRM in place with the automations, with the 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 tickets and the web forms and all the things that go into it, you're going to replace three people. In yeah. my opinion, two to three people is what that technology can replace. So, if you take your average salary and multiply it by two and a half, you're not paying that much a year for HubSpot. Why wouldn't you do that? You know, and I think that it's we're in such an old school industry that it's just people have made a comfortable living doing things the way they've always done them. And you really have to be forward thinking to push the envelope.
2: Well, I, it comes down to systems and processes, you know, every year when we get our contingencies, I take none of it personal. I put it all back in the business. I, I portion of it goes to fund my employees 401ks and profit shares. Another portion goes into the technology pieces. Um, and so we're always enhancing our equipment, looking at what we're doing, but we're not afraid to take a look at a vendor and say, hey, you told us X, Y, and Z, and it's just not coming that way. and we're not willing, we're willing to fire them too, you know? And so there's accountability on both sides. I'm willing to spend the money, um, but I need you to back up what you said it could do or, or your service or whatever else. I'm not going to sit there and keep paying for something that's really not performing the way we need it to perform. Now, if it's something on our end, I want to know that because I will hire people to, to deal with that. I mean, I brought a guy that just worked for a company a new HubSpot. And so I'm paying him $70,000 a year. To to run it, I mean, it is what it is. It's just the cost of doing business. But also, I have people in the Philippines that I pay a hell a lot less to do the fundamental things of just the data entry stuff, and so it all offsets
1: itself. How much? How how do you guys go about marketing your niches? Are you doing a lot of? um, I mean, I'm under the impression a ton of it is referral, but obviously, you're doing other things too. What other stuff are you doing?
2: You know, within the niches, we'll. We'll advertise in their trade publications. Um, I'll go to their annual trade shows. Um, I'll be on some of their podcasts. You know, I'm doing lectures with the um, their suppliers. A bunch of the suppliers and us will get together and we'll have lunch and learns or things like that, Rob Robin type things. Um, we have a scholarship for the dry cleaners for their uh, their kids. You know, their kids will, There's a board and then we give out a thousand dollar scholarship every year. And uh, we've given out three last year. And so we're active through their suppliers, through their newsletters, uh, through their websites, um, through their center's influence, um, and through their associations and trade shows and publications.
1: I know one of the things that's big for you is Clinger Cares and what you do in the community. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? I was really impressed with the stuff you've done. We've done some things here. Um, with backpacks that are filled with school supplies uh, at the beginning of the school year. I know you guys did some really cool stuff with bikes, if I remember correctly. Talk about that for a few minutes. I
2: I think that if anything gives me chills is um, giving back. You know, I grew up um, pretty easy. I grew up pretty poor. And so being in this industry has given me a blessing and, and a standard of living to give back. And so we require all employees to do at least eight hours of minimum community service. And so we do some core things that I'm very passionate about. Um, I'm a veteran. um, I'm a wounded veteran. And so we get back to um, whether it be Wounded Warriors, Operation Second Chance, Rising Angels. These are all nonprofits to help veterans after they get injured in combat, whether paying for flights, paying for care. A lot of different things that they do. We do things with all the schools. We have 11 elementary schools in our area. And we have four middle schools and two high schools. And so I have programs for the elementary schools where we do backpacks where every year we'll donate between 100 to 250. One year we did 500 among all of them. We'll fill them up with all the school supplies and things like that and issue them out. Uh, We do Thanksgiving meals and uh, and Christmas meals or you want to call holiday meals. Um, We'll go to the guidance counselors to know what families are of need and we'll donate prepackaged meals. We have a reading program that we instill in April. We ask the kids to read in March and April, one month, over a five-week span. All Every book they read, they put their name on a on a ticket. It goes in a box. At the end of the month, we go to the student union in front of the whole school body, and each grade has a box sitting up there on stage with their mascot. And then I call one of the kids, and they pull a name, and that kid w- gets a bicycle, a helmet, a bike lock, and a reflector jacket. And they just nice. love it. And I tell you, you, you want to talk about chills? It's amazing. We also do a program where every week, throughout the school year, we have um, we put back we fill the backpacks with food. There are kids that are poverty level where when they go home on Saturday and Sunday they don't have breakfast or lunch. They get that at school, but when they go home on the weekend they don't have food. So we spend about eighty five hundred dollars a year for this program. And we pack the backpacks every week and we send them out to the schools and then they give them the backpacks the kids bring them back in on monday we pick them back up and we do it every week we've been this program for three years you know um so that's the elementary schools the middle schools we sponsor all their teams any type of team sports they do we do all that for them there um, high schools we do internships and then we have scholarships for high schools as well and then we sponsor their sporting events and then we have something with the um, University of Maryland where we'll bring students in and then we have international um, with Korea and China. Where we'll bring international students in business and they'll come intern here for six months, learn about risk management or insurance or something like that, and then they'll go back to the country. And so we do that as well. Um, we do a program for it's called Rainbow Place. It, this is a home for abused ladies that are battered and they have nowhere to live. And so we'll buy, we we donated computers to have these ladies learn how to write resumes and job skills. And I sent people there to help them train them how to build their own resumes. We donate food for the shelter there. We do holiday meals for those ladies while they're there. Um, one year we bought a um, hundred golf umbrellas because they're going out for jobs and they needed umbrellas. We gave them golf umbrellas. Um, so we do that program there. We do another one called uh, soup kitchen. Soup kitchen is where my staff will go there once a month. And they'll make meals that will go. That'll be donated out to the men's shelter or the women's shelter. We'll do that there. Uh, we do another soup kitchen in Frederick County where we're cooking it right there in the spot and handing out to the people coming off the streets and feeding them right there. So we've done a lot of different things um, that come to mind. I, I
3: mean, don't know. I feel like you could get more involved, man. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, the thing is, this, I have one person, her whole job is to take a look at what we're doing every month, and it's a counter straight out through. And then what we've done is we have created a, a foundation, a charitable foundation. And so this is all agencies can do this. You sit down with your tax accountant, look at what you're going to pay in taxes each year, set up this foundation, put the money into the charity, you get the write off. The charity, okay, mine's Fidelity. They will look at when someone, when a 501c3 wants me to sponsor them, they'll validate to make sure it's a legitimate charity. And if it is, they will then issue the funds. We do car shows, you know, raise money and things like that. Um, so we do a lot of different things, but I think, you know, giving back has been the greatest thing. It really, really has. And I think it's really rallied my employees around it too, because they enjoy it. They enjoy it. It's not just coming to work. They're giving back to the community, or they're they're wanting to do things. We did things with the Girl Scouts, things with the Boy Scouts. My son's Boy Scout. Their trailer went down. They needed a new trailer. It was like 13 years old. We raised the money, bought them an old trailer, had Under Armour do all the logos in the back end for their trailer and things like that, so kids could go. Uh, two years ago, a kid wanted to go to Philmont. He didn't have the money. Single parent. Philmont cost about two grand. He, I made him work for it. We donated the money. Awesome. You know? and, and what I asked him to do is go back and give back up to the community. So he worked with the local park, building some benches and doing some cleanup work. And therefore, you know, we, we donate the money.
3: Very cool.
1: Yeah, I think that's great, man. I mean, in, when you come from humble beginnings, um, regardless of the level of success that you get, I think that many people tend to do exactly what you're doing. A few don't, maybe not on the same scale that what you're doing. But I mean, I I love it when I can can surround myself with people who um, check their ego at the door.
2: What you'll find is in our industry, there are so many compassionate agencies that you'll see, whether through IOA or other industries. Uh, Some of my great friends like Chris Paradiso, Mike Stroms, a lot of these guys, they give back and they really do a great job within their community, whether it's their Flag Day or Claudia McClain. I mean, these people are amazing what they do. And so I think, I think a lot of times we do more important things than our major carers do, you know, naturally in church cares, they want a big golf outing, this or that, but the touching at home locally within the community, no one does it better than independent agents. I,
1: I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And those are the ones we know about. You sure. know, the, a lot of people, a lot of people just quietly go about doing the exact same thing. And you know, you never you never realize it's happening. But but certainly I, I agree with you. I think from an industry standpoint, the ability to earn and build wealth is not capped at all. It's capped by your own desire to succeed in the team that you build and the ability to give back and make an impact in the community and, and do the things that we're capable of doing. I just I don't know of any other industry where they have that ability. I, I, well, I mean, I shouldn't say that where it's done. I think any industry has the ability. But the, the fact, um, you know, your story, your story uh, takes the military out. I, I didn't wasn't in the military, but I mean, I didn't grow up as a rich person. I didn't grow up. I, I knew what it was like to work, man. I mean, I got my first job because there was a person I wanted to go to church camp and there was a guy at the church who had a dog that was on a um, on one of the, those stakes in the yard with the chain so that it couldn't run away. This is long before invisible fences were out. Sorry, PETA, in case you're listening. Um, But this dog would run around in circles and it dug this massive trench to the point that when I went back to see what I was supposed to do, you could only see like the top of the dog's back. That's how deep this was. And the deal was he needed me to fill in the trench for him. And if if I would spend the day filling in the trench, then he would pay for my scholarship to go to camp. It was only a couple hundred bucks, but it was a lot of money for me. Uh, you know, at, at 13, 14 years old. And, and this is back in the 80s. So it's bought you a lot more money back then, too. So I worked all day long with a shovel, blisters on my hands. My hands were bloody by the time I was done. And when the guy came home, he said, Not only did you work hard enough, my little brother actually came and helped me. He said, I'm just going to take care of a scholarship for both of you. You guys did way better than I ever could have imagined. And he said, But I want you to know I own a chain of sporting goods stores. And as soon as you're old enough, you have a job with me. Just all you have to do is tell me when you're able to start working and and I'll I'll, uh, put you to work. And so at 14, I was old enough to work in the state of Florida. I literally stood for hours putting film letters on the back of baseball jerseys for all the little leagues. I made letter jackets for people in high school. And I mean, I've worked my entire life. And I think that there's a lot of us that are like that and i think that i don't think it's an accident when you talk to successful agency owners that that's the same story we've all been doing something since we were old that's that's not the first work that i ever did but i mean to to start working the day that you're legally able to that builds a certain habit you know set of habits that that help you be more successful i'm not going to tell you that i was the model employee at 14 years old i was a 14 year old kid but i still understood what it meant to go to work
2: yeah no doubt
1: well, listen, man, I know that you know your phone's probably been lighting up. I appreciate you coming on. The one thing I really want to do, Bob, is if anybody out there wants to help you with the stuff you're doing in the community and the nonprofit things, tell them how they can do that. Tell them how they can get involved with you, whether it be financially or from a support standpoint. I know we have a lot of people in Maryland who listen to us. I've got family up there that I know will be hearing this, and I want to be able to do anything we can to uh, get people involved to help you raise money for these different projects you're doing?
2: Well, you can either follow us, you know, www.ClingerInsuranceGroup.com or follow us on Facebook, because um, we post everything on social media. I mean, you'll see us every day, quite a few times a day on all the things we do. Um, and so, follow us on social media, uh, under Clinger Insurance Group, or follow us on the web at ClingerInsuranceGroup.com.
1: And that goes for people who have insurance needs, too. I mean, Bob's not afraid to sell to you.
2: Well, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the greatest thing about this business is I'm not licensed in every state. And so I definitely reciprocate when I have a client that moves to a different state. And the great thing is I've gotten to know so many different people. I call them up and say, hey, look, I have a friend that if you like the service we provide it, I'm sure you're going to like them. You know, they're top shelf as well. And we, we do that handoff as well.
1: And no pressure at all for the agency that you referred that to, right? (laughs) No way, man. Clinger's calling me with another lead. I can't live up to those expectations. (laughs) Listen, I I appreciate your time this morning, man. It's been fun talking to you. I appreciate what you're doing for the industry. I appreciate what you're doing in your community. You're you're a good human being. We appreciate your service. I mean, I, I know I can tell you, um, just listening to you speak in innovation and the time that I've spent hearing you this morning makes me a better person. And uh, for that, I'm truly grateful. Okay,
2: thank you again. I agree. Be safe. Yes, sir. You too.
0: You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes and our website, killingcommercial.com.